You'll need a, a pen or a paper tonight because we got lots of bullet points to go over. Especially under the first one. Lots and lots of bullet points. Okay, what, what have we been talking about in Galatians? What's the overall letter about? We've got some new faces with us tonight. So class, what have we said it's about? Gifts of the Spirit. Is what? Gifts of the Spirit. That's what we're on now. Mm -hmm. Walking in the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Very good. The background to the letter is the Judaizers. The Judaizers were legalists who were coming into the Galatian churches that Paul had planted. And they were saying, well and good that you've come to Christ, but he's not enough. On top of Christ, you need the law and uh, you need circumcision because Christ is not sufficient. And what did Paul say about that type of gospel? That it's not a gospel at all. And Paul said, even if we or an angel uh, from heaven came preaching that, let them be anathema. And one of the strongest words in the Greek New Testament, basically let them be eternally damned. Now, as we pointed out, circumcision not the issue today. It was back then in the first century. Uh, new Christians deciding what to do about that. But the principle is very much alive today. People who will think that in some way they've got to add human works to Christ in order to be saved. And again, that's no gospel at all. It's no gospel at all. We believe in grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Christ is sufficient. And so Paul has been writing to the Galatians because he says, you've been bewitched by these Judaizers that have come in. They're false teachers. And you need to turn away from what they're saying. Because if you try to mix uh, grace and works, you end up destroying grace. And works don't save anyway. Never have. Even in the Old Testament. You know, he used again the illustration of Abraham, didn't he? 430 years before the law. And 17 years before the sign of the covenant being circumcision. Abraham believed God and it was credited unto him as righteousness. So even in the Old Testament, they were not saved by the law or by circumcision. Okay, now we've been in that section now uh, where he begins kind of wrapping up the letter with more application-oriented uh, principles. And as I've mentioned to the group, whereas normally I like to deal with a passage of Scripture, a, a pericope, what's a pericope? A single unit of thought. <clears throat> For example, Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. 
would be a pericope, a single unit of thought. And usually in preaching, what we do is we go down to a, a pericope, a paragraph, a unit, and deal with that. But when you're dealing with maybe one word at a time, uh, like tonight, goodness, and we've dealt with what? Love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness tonight. What we're doing is drawing in other passages of Scripture also that speak to that word. So we're jumping around a little bit to other passages. Okay? Let's pick up reading again in verse 22. Paul says, By contrast, <clears throat> the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing, competing against one another, envying one another. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm losing my voice tonight. Some of you may say that's a good thing. <laughs> In 1989, at a speech that Billy Graham made at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, you know, of course, there's a Charlotte branch now to Gordon-Conwell Seminary. Billy Graham said these words, and I quote, God's word is not being taught today in the home or the schools. The television is telling our children what is good or bad. As a matter of fact, the media is telling our children there is no good or bad. Everything is relative. We've lost sight of the fact that some things are always right and some things are always wrong. We've lost our reference point. We don't have any moral philosophy to undergird our way of life in this country. And our way of life is in serious jeopardy and serious danger unless something happens. And that something must be a spiritual revival. <clears throat> Folks, that was in 89 that he said that. You know, there's a lot of confusion today about right and wrong, about goodness. And it begins early, doesn't it? A, a child, for example, thinks to have a bright, new, shiny quarter would be better than having an old, worn-out dollar bill. Right? Adults even get confused about goodness in life. Many would say that the good life is physical or material. And by that, what I mean is the good life is if you have all the comforts of life that you want. For a lot of people, that's the good life. And then others would say there'd be some, maybe some you meet around here. Uh, coming up a few weeks in October. Some gentleman that says, if I can take a cooler full of Budweiser and go to the NASCAR race, that's the good life. Right? <clears throat> Some would say that good life is, you know, if they live in one of the nicer neighborhoods in town, drive a sporty import, have a home on the lake, they might say, hey, we're living the good life. And what adds to the confusion, what's the good life to one person may not necessarily be the good life to another. 
I'll give you an illustration of that. At supper tonight, if I were to throw a good piece of fish on the grill, something like a sea bass or rainbow trout, you know, I'd think, man, that's good. Well, Connie wouldn't think that's good at all. <laughs> so when I say good, obviously different things come to mind, right? Now, we're pretty much in agreement on some things, whether good or bad. For example, what would come to your mind if I said Adolf Hitler? Or if I said Mother Teresa? What about Osama bin Laden? How about Billy Graham? You see, we, we pretty well agree on that list of good and bad with some things and some people. One of our problems with goodness is the same problem we have with love. The word love is used in so many different ways. We love our children. We love our spouse. We love apple pie. We love our dog. We love a beautiful sunset. We use the word love in different ways there, right? It's the same way with good. We said I have a I, I had a good meal tonight, or, or he's a good person. So we're going to explore these things tonight. We're going to talk about one aspect of the ninefold fruit of the Spirit is goodness. We're going to try to un unpack biblical goodness. If goodness means many things in the world, what does the Word of God mean by it? And so we're going to try to understand biblical goodness and then apply biblical goodness. And let me remind you when we talk about the ninefold fruit of the Spirit. Again, we're talking about something that is supernatural. These are not virtues that we work up on our own. They're not natural. They're supernatural. And they come about through walking in the Spirit. Abiding in Christ and walking in the Spirit. It's something that God produces in us. Well, when we talk about biblical goodness, let's start in the proper place. Let's look at the presentation of God's goodness. What would we say? Definitely, God is good. In fact, God is the source and the fountain of all true goodness. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now, our word good comes from the old Anglo-Saxon word that literally means, believe it or not, to be like God. If we're going to talk about goodness, then we've got to talk about God. The scripture says God is abounding in goodness. God abounds in several things. The Bible says God abounds in grace. Paul in the book of Romans said where, where sin abounded, God's grace abounded all the more. And that means that God can save the most wretched of sinners. You cannot out-sin God's salvation. I mean, think about the apostle Paul. Rabbi Saul breathing out threats against believers, going up to Damascus with papers, 
so he could seize the Christians and bring them back and put them on trial and even put them to death. There he was at the stoning of Stephen too. But God got a hold of him on the road to Damascus. And Paul ends up saying in 1 Timothy 1, he talks about himself being what? The chief of sinners. And yet he said, I was the chief of sinners. And yet God was pleased to display his grace in me and to save me. God abounds in grace. God also abounds in love. I think of when Jesus looked at the rich young ruler and, and, you know, he didn't say this to everybody. He said it to the rich young ruler because the rich young ruler was depending on his material goods. And Jesus said to him, you've got to go and sell all that you have, give to the poor, and come and follow me. And he hung his head low and turned away because he was very rich. And how does the scripture say that Jesus looked at him? He loved him. He loved him. He's abounding in love. Well, God's abounding in goodness. The idea is where goodness flows and flows and flows out of God. And yet, though it constantly flows from God, it's not diminished and it's not exhausted. The idea is that as God pours out goodness, He has even more goodness to pour out. As another subpoint to this, we could say God's watch care is good. In the sense of God being a shepherd, Jesus said, I am the what shepherd? The good shepherd. And he said, I lay down my life for the sheep. And the good shepherd knows his sheep by name. The good shepherd calls his sheep and leads them, as David said, beside the still waters and into green pastures. He leads us in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. A third sub-point we could use here is God's word is good. Psalm 119, verses 38 to 39. Establish thy word to thy servant as that which produces reverence for thee, turn away my reproach which I dread for your ordinances or your commandments are good. You know, some people in the world want to view God's word as restrictive. It's restrictive. It's restraining. But you read Psalm 119, what the psalmist said God does in his life through his word. God's word brings freedom and liberty. He talks about how it's good nourishing and refreshing the soul. 2 Timothy 3.17 says that God's word equips us and prepares us for every good work. There's a fourth thing we could say. God's will is good. In Romans 12.2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. There are even Christians in the church not living, quote-unquote, the good life because they're not pursuing the will of God. So many people, you even find 
people in the church, again, go back to that thought that the good life is somehow or another rooted and grounded in the world and the things of the world. And you know what they end up finding out? They may have more than they've ever had in their lives, but they're still not satisfied. Why? Because they're not living according to the will of God. The will of God is good. And then lastly about this, we could say that God's ways are good. He's light, and in Him is no darkness at all. In 1 John 1, 5, John says, This is the message we've heard from Him and announced to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. God's even able to bring good out of bad. Romans 8, 28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Well, that's just a few examples that talks about God being the source of goodness and various aspects of God and what God does that are good. But let's move on secondly to talk about the the deprivation of man's goodness. And, and what I want to do tonight, I've, I've done this before with you, is get you to return in your thoughts to Paul's development of, of his thought in the book of Romans. What's Paul doing in the first three chapters of the book of Romans? We've talked about this before. You remember what he's doing? What is he laying out in those first three chapters of Romans? Sinfulness of man. Hmm? Sinfulness of man. The sinfulness of man. <clears throat> you know, he, he said there in chapter 1 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, then to the Gentile, but then he goes on in verse 18 of chapter 1 to talk about those who suppress the truth of God. And how dangerous it is when we suppress the truth of God because he says those who rebel against God, suppress His truth, want nothing to do with God's truth. God gives them over in His wrath to their own ways. God gives them over to things like degrading passions, in a depraved mind. It's like Paul is saying to someone who, who has God's truth and rejects God's truth, God greases the sliding board in the direction that that unbeliever desires to go. And what's going to be the end of that? Eternal destruction. And Paul talks about the sin. Of, of Gentiles who do that. And maybe the Jew who's trusting in the law is standing back and saying, sick them, Paul. Get them. You tell them. Yeah! So what's he do, began doing in Romans chapter 2? The Jews, depending on the law, you're just as bad as them. You're condemned too, you who rely on the law, who rely on goodness to save you, who rely on things like circumcision or whatever is in the law. And you're trusting in that. You're just as bad. You're just as guilty. 
And he goes on to talk about how the gospel is needed because we are all in sin. Paul, outside of Christ, we're all in sin. Paul is an equal opportunity offender in the first three chapters of Romans, right? An equal opportunity offender. We've turned away from the truth of God and the wrath of God is being poured out. The Gentiles under the wrath of God, the Jew is under the wrath of God and he's going to conclude by saying in Romans 3.23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now back in chapter 3 verses 9 to 12, Paul said in Romans 3, he said for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin as it is written there is none righteous not even one there is none who understands there is none who seeks for God all have turned aside together they have become useless there is none who does good there is not even one now understand what he's saying Man is not good naturally. Now, does Paul mean by that that there's nothing good that anybody can ever do? Is he saying that nobody ever does anything good? He's not saying that because of, of God's common grace. Even the evil can do good. Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Because of God's common grace, even lost men and women can do good things. Boy Scouts can help a little old lady across the road. But that's not what the Bible is referring to when it says no one is good, not even one. What's Paul talking about there? What's he mean? Sinful nature? Okay. How so? What's when he says there's no one who's good, not even one? There's no way that we can make equal God's standard. There's no way that we can communicate with God. There's no good that we can do to put ourselves in a right standing before God. Sure, the Boy Scout might help the little old lady across the road. That doesn't, in and of itself, make him right in the eyes of God. There's nothing that man can do, no amount of goodness man can do to bridge the gulf between himself and God. There's nothing I can do, nothing you can do to justify yourself in the sight of a holy God. You'll not be able to get to heaven, I'll not be able to get to heaven and say, God, if Boy, if you let Ronnie in, you got to let me in because I'm better than him. Or he couldn't say the same thing in reverse. You know, God, I'm good. Bible says it doesn't happen that way. Why not? Because as Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. <laughs> Apart from Christ... It's not that you were simply on life support. You didn't have a spiritual pulse of 20 beats. You were dead. 
There is no goodness in you that can justify you. Remember what Jesus said to the rich young ruler also? He said, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Now, Jesus wasn't denying his own goodness. He was simply asking the rich young ruler, why are you calling me good? You know from your Jewish training, nobody is good. So if you're calling me good, does that mean you're acknowledging me as being good? Uh, being God, rather, because no one's good but God. And this is an area where liberal theology gets it so wrong. Liberal theology says, you know, man's basically good. What man needs is, he just needs a better environment. Clean him up, feed him, give him a good education, give him good opportunities in life, and he'll be okay. It's a lipstick on that. Put some lipstick on that pig. <laughs> but folks, isn't it interesting? The more educated and sophisticated we become as a society at the same time, the more evil we are becoming. Now, not to deny that we want to help others better themselves, but man isn't simply in need of betterment. He's in need of regeneration. And the reason that is because, again, we're dead in trespasses and sins. David even said, in sin my mother conceived me. And this goes back to our uh, Adamic nature. By nature and by choice, we follow in the footsteps of Adam. How does man become good? Man can become good only in his redeemed state. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. And the Greek is clear here. Everything, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Now, it's all the gift of God. It's not a result of works. Then he goes on to say, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Something that cannot happen in the sight of God apart from Jesus Christ. You know, most Simon Peter jokes at the pearly gates, pretty, pretty poor theology, and I, you know, I'm not even sure you wouldn't find something wrong with this one too, but man who dies and goes to heaven, he meets Peter at the pearly gates and says, uh, Peter says to him, here's how it works. You need a thousand points to make it into heaven. You tell me all the good things. Now, Peter's just setting him up, okay? Peter's not actually saying this is the way it is in the judgment. You tell me all the good things you've done, and I'll give you points for each item, depending on how good it was. When you reach a thousand points, you'll get in. Okay, the, the man says, I was married to the same wonderful woman for 50 years, and I've always been faithful to her. Simon Pierce is wonderful. That's worth two points. 
Two points, the man yells. Well, I attended church all my life. I supported its ministry and my with my tithe and service. I even, back in the old days, I even got those pins you could put on your lapel about perfect attendance. Terrific, Peter says. That's worth a half a point. A half a point? I went with my church on mission trips and worked in our church's benevolent ministry, looking after those in our community with needs. Wonderful, Simon Peter says. A quarter of one point. <laughs> the man's so frustrated by now, he says, at this rate, the only way I'll ever get into heaven is by the grace of God. <laughs> Peter says a thousand points. <laughs> Once being redeemed, Ephesians 2.10 says, again, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you would walk in. You see, this is part of what's been regained in regeneration. Adam and Eve were placed on this earth to commune with God, to be stewards of the earth, to live right, to do good, and all of this was lost in the fall. All of this and more was lost in the fall. But at redemption, what was impossible or what is impossible in human nature alone and human ability, God has done for us in and through Jesus Christ. And so now through Christ, you and I can do good works, which he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in. So what's that look like? The manifestation of redeemed man's goodness. We know that we're to live in goodness. Write down Ephesians 5, 1 to 14. In fact, turn there with me. Ephesians 5, 1 to 14. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. What's he saying there? Like father, like son, right? Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness in silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of, of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not 
participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are, are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What was impossible before redemption is now possible. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Alfred Barnes, a well-known commentator, said about the phrase, the fruit of the Spirit is goodness, that the sense is that a Christian man should be a good man. Through the grace of God that abounds to us, we can do what was impossible before. We should also say here, a second bullet point, we're to do good to enemies. Romans 12, 17 to 21. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not, over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. A third bullet point, we're to, we're to do good to the household of faith. Galatians 6, 9 through 10, a passage we'll look at later. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And then we can also say we are to stir one another up to good deeds. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Some examples in the Bible of the saints doing good come from the book of 1 Timothy. Listen to 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modesty, and being discreet, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. And then in chapter 5, Verses 9 through 10 of 1 Timothy. Let a widow be put on the list only if she's not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works. And if she has brought up children, if she's shown hospitality to strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, if she's assisted those in distress, if she's devoted herself to every good work. And then in chapter 6, verses 17 to 19, again of 1 Timothy. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited 
or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Now let me say also that man's goodness is not done to boast. Man's goodness should glorify God. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 13 to 16 about being salt and light? He said, let men see your good works that they may do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Also, let me warn that man's goodness is not to be for show. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, Jesus talked about those who give in church and pray in church in order to be seen. That's their motive. And Jesus said they have their reward in full. They wanted a pat on the back from men. They'll get a pat on the back from some men, but that's all they should expect. They will not get a reward from God. Let me also say man's goodness can silence the ignorant. 1 Peter 2, 15 to 17. I told you I had a lot for you to write down tonight, right? Peter says, For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. You see, back in Peter's day, Christians were being accused of a number of things. Uh, and this number of things in the Greco-Roman world, uh, unbelievers said, this didn't make them good citizens. They were, Christians were accused of being cannibals. Why were we being accused of being cannibals? The Lord's Supper. Where Jesus said, this is my blood, this is my body. We were also accused of incest. Because in the church, what do we refer to one another as? Brothers and sisters. Your wife is also your sister in Christ if she's a believer. They were accused of insurrection because they would not go into the Roman temples and burn incense and say, Caesar is Lord. And so word got out on Christians that they were bad citizens. In fact, when the Roman Empire began to decline, <coughs> They blamed it on Christians. They said these Christians who will not recognize our Roman gods have ticked off our Roman gods. They've made our gods mad. And this is why the Roman Empire, one reason why the Roman Empire, they said, was declining. So Peter is saying we are to live such good lives that we would silence the arguments of the ignorant.
Two more points I want to make here. Man's goodness helps everyone in a sense. Titus 3.8. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. The Bible says sin is a reproach to any people. But the opposite is true too, right? Goodness benefits everyone. And then lastly, man's goodness reflects godly wisdom. James 3.13 Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So as we've said before, good works simply cannot be the root of our salvation. But good works are to be the fruit of our salvation. We're to walk in the Spirit and goodness is to be a part of the ninefold fruit of the Spirit. Understand that you are to live a good life as a believer. You're to be filled with good works. Christ has created you for good works. So at school, at home, in the neighborhood, in the marketplace, you and I are to set a good example. Our lives are to adorn the gospel. How good are you at doing that? Are there specific areas you need to work on? I want you to remember too, if you're performing good deeds in, in the sense that, you know, maybe if I do enough good, I might get some brownie points from God and this will help me get into heaven. You don't understand the gospel. Thanks for a thousand points. Thanks a thousand points. Apart from Christ, there is no goodness in you that will justify you in the sight of God. In fact, all of, all of your righteousnesses, it's plural, in Isaiah, are as filthy rags before God. You need Christ. But being in Christ, we live a life of goodness. And good works. We're to be imitators of God. Any questions? Any comments? Richard, I was, <clears throat> I was thinking of two men that the world the world looks at as good good men, and that the Christian circles also looks at as good men. And uh, one of them is uh, oh, John I. Rice, the evangelist. He came to our church. We had a little church in the game. And, <clears throat> and he was in his late 80s and he sang this song. Uh, he said, oh, uh, name of the song was Oh to be like thee. And here's a fellow that, you know, he was really up as far as goodness when you think of it. And here is his desire is to be likely, 
And the other fellow I was thinking of was uh, Billy Graham was interviewed, and he was asked, well, what, what, what kind of legacy do you want to? What, what, what men would say about you? And he said, well, basically he was saying he wasn't, he didn't care that much about the praise of men. It was, uh, he wanted to hear good, uh, well done, not good, and faithful servant from Jesus. So most of these men, they, they look, their, their true goodness was in Jesus. Amen. But it's scary when somebody says he's going to heaven because he was a good man. Yeah. Well, who are they talking about? The person, or are they talking about he followed Jesus? You know, it's scary when they say he was a good man. You know. Like you're about to say something. No, I'm just taking it in. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, let me do this again. Miss <laughs> Kathy, get us started tonight on our intercessory prayer time. Please, ma'am. that are hurting with all the sicknesses 
that they might uh, realize God is an opportunity to witness to all the people caring for them. We pray especially for Chuck and Sharon tonight. Chuck seems to have rebounded, God, and we just thank you for that. We pray that you give Chuck and Sharon good days, good days and all the little things, the little things like the garden or the squirrels playing on the tree or anything, God, that happens around them. We pray that you'll just make it a good day for them. And I thank you that they're both such strong witnesses for you and that they see you and everything around them. I pray for Miss Liz tonight, Lord, that you would ease her pain, Lord. She's suffering so with her hip and it doesn't seem like there could be anything done about that, God, but you know all about that. You know every pain that she feels. And I pray, Lord, that you would ease her pain and that you would put all kinds of wonderful good thoughts in her mind, Heavenly Father, as she struggles each day. And I pray, Lord, that your will would be done in her life and that soon, Lord, maybe if it's your will, she would be uh, able to just go on to heaven and be with you. I pray for Rodney and Mary as they take care of her, Lord. I, I know their patience must be very, very thin right now. I know that they're questioning you about all these things that have happened. But God, our, our, our place as Christians is not to question so much as it is to God saying, say, how do I deal with this? What, what steps do I need to take? to honor and glorify you. And I pray that Robbie and Mary Ann would take that same attitude as they care for this live every day. I pray for Jim and Beverly. We have no idea, God, what they go through every day. But Jim being sick and Beverly on dialysis, but God, you know. You know all about it. I thank you that their witness is so strong. I pray, Lord, that you would give Beverly strength every day as she goes through dialysis as she takes care of Jim, as she tends to the house as best she can, as she makes meals with them. Lord, I pray that you would give her strength beyond any human comprehension as she does these things each day. For all the people in this, I pray for my Lord and the stint coming up on Tuesday. I pray that all of that would go well with the doctors that would follow, that you would just guide their hands as they go into his body to repair the damage that's done as they go into repair blockage that is there. For each person in this room, God, I pray a very special prayer tonight. We're not here just because we chose to, God. We're here because of the divine appointment with you, because you have a word in what Pastor Scott said tonight, that each one of us needed to hear in our lives. I pray that you would give each individual in this room listening ears and listening heart, so that when we leave this place today, God, that your words would just resonate in their head so that it could just be assimilated into their being and taken into the very hearts. And God, there's people in this room with problems and suffering tonight. Father, I know that you know all about it. I pray that you would give them strength. And Father, help us to always know that we're not alone in this world. That these things that we're going through with COVID and everything else happening around us, Lord, that you're with us every step that we take. And I pray, Lord, that each one of be each one of us would be so conscious of that that we would even talk aloud to you each day, God, as we walk the pathway that's laid before us. Pray, God, that you would heal burning hearts. Help us always to, to know, God, that there's not any problem, there's not any heartache <coughs> in my face. 
that you're not able to help us to deal with. I pray especially God tonight for all the people that have children and grandchildren who are friends and the people who are hurting because of that. I pray, Father, that we could just commit everything to you and that we trust you because you are a God of goodness. And everything that happens in our lives is for a purpose, God. And I pray that the lessons wouldn't be wasted on us, that we would be aware of the lessons, God, that every lesson would cause us to come out to be a stronger person, a better person. Help us, God, to live every day to be the good people that you created us to be through the good works, through the grace. Help us, Father, as we rise each day to do the good works that you created us for. Again, Father, thank you so much. We thank you for Jesus who died for us when we were dead in our trespasses. We thank you that you love us as unlovely as we are. We just praise you for all things, Father, and we pray our prayer tonight in the name of Jesus. You've probably already done so, but if not, look up at the board and just grab a hold of a couple of these names that just quietly, right there where you're seated, that you lift them up before the throne of grace. Charlie, would you close us? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the special time of the night to come to hear your word, that um, we can take what we've heard tonight apply it in our own lives each day, that we remember, Father God, that Jesus said he lived each day to please you, and you desired 
us to become more and more like your image. And that we would put it in our hearts, Father. We want to please you every day and not man. Father, I pray as we leave this building tonight, we remember we walk out into the mission field, that we would be um, sensitive to those you bring across our path to share the word of the gospel, and that we would be bold enough to tell. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Think of something good you could do for a lost person in your life. Maybe a neighbor. Something you could do for them that in the long run might have an impact for the gospel in their lives. Think of someone, something you could do, and do it. See you Sunday.